All right, so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Acts. That's what. That's where we were, yeah. Book of Acts, <clears throat> chapter 9. Chapter 9. Um, in the grand scheme of things, you know, there are, there are 27, 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and I was not my plan to stay here until I get through Acts 28, you know, but but uh, until things move, you know, we, we just keep on plugging, but we're in Acts chapter 9 today. So I'm going to read a portion of Scripture, uh, first nine verses of this chapter, <clears throat> and then we'll uh, bore down a little bit on the content there. Verse 1, Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, <clears throat> he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. <clears throat> That's the account of the conversion of Saul. Later he'll be renamed Paul. It was such a life-changing experience that he ended up being renamed. It was that significant. This is the second encounter by a roadside. You know, the only word, the only time we hear roadside nowadays is in terms of bombs, intermediate explosive devices, IED. That you hear about a roadside bombing. Well, this roadside experience is quite different. We have the experience that uh, um, Philip was involved with, with the Ethiopian official. He goes down to a desert place, and by the roadside, go down to the, the desert road and encounters this Ethiopian official. That's Acts chapter 8 last week. And now we have another roadside experiences, experience. Uh, as a matter of fact, we, we have a phrase that <clears throat> we sometimes use to describe this conversion of Saul. We call it the Damascus Road experience. And I remember at times where sometimes people would tell us or ask us, have you had a Damascus Road experience? And by that, I think they probably meant, have you come to the place where you've been born again, you've been converted, you've been regenerated by the power of God's Spirit? 
I don't think everybody comes <clears throat> in the same way that Saul does in, in terms of all of the things that happened. I mean, when I came to faith in Christ, I don't remember a blinding light that knocked me down. I don't remember a voice from heaven that said, Chuck, Chuck, how much Chuck can a woodchuck? No, I didn't hear that. It, it didn't, I didn't hear that. I, I, I wasn't blind for three days. I, 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 that was just not my experience. But I am as certain that I have come to faith in Christ as Saul experienced because it was the difference that Jesus Christ made in my life and in Saul's life. And that's all the difference the world can make. So roadside experience. This is probably one of the most impactful or impacting conversions that is recorded in the scripture and probably in all of Christianity. You don't want to rank one person's experience as more important than somebody else, you know, in, in the economy of God and the plan of God. But, but certainly <clears throat> the work that Saul later named Paul contributed to the kingdom is significant. You have many of the New Testament books of the Bible. You have him going in missionary endeavor. You have it's just amazing the things that he is able to accomplish. So we dig down a bit here today, and we're going to look at, at what I would describe as simply the sovereign activity of God in searching for a person and the lengths to which he goes to find him. <clears throat> God is in the business of looking for people, individuals, and I know that sometimes it can happen collectively in terms of whole tribes. We talk about Africa whole tribes that can come by virtue of a choice that is made by a leader. But we come to the cross one by one. We come to Jesus in that same way. So I want to look at several aspects that are part of that, that roadside conversion, which is really not just another roadside conversion. It's different. It's different in its scope and impact as far as the kingdom goes. First, I want you to look at the divine contact. The divine contact. Uh, in, in verse 3, as we read through this story, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. <clears throat> this experience that Paul conveys here in the front part of chapter 9 is recorded two other places in the book of Acts by Luke, the author. Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 16 Acts chapter 26, verses 2 through 18. And it's interesting, very interesting, the similarities that exist between those recountings, those tellings of the story. Um, there's nothing that is included here that is not included in those other portions, the basic kinds of information in terms of what was going on. And they are the retelling from Paul's perspective of his conversion experience. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever uh, been in dialogue with someone and, and uh, have asked them, would you share how you came to faith in Christ? Uh, sometimes we say, we, would you be willing to share your testimony, as the phrase that sometimes we use. In other words, what was a part of the journey that God used to bring you to faith in him? <clears throat> and the different it can be different for different folks. <clears throat> sometimes it can be. A, a significant in-your-face aha moment. Other times, 
it can be a kind of like a gradual turning of the light bulb on. And suddenly you come to a place where you know that you have moved from death to life. You have accepted Christ as your Savior. It's a choice that you've made, and he is making a difference in your life. So it, it may be a little different in terms of the experiences, but nonetheless, in all of the experiences, you'll find some things that are common. The first part is that there is this divine contact. Prior to this contact, we, we find in the first couple of verses that Saul is in the business of persecuting the church. It's interesting. We were talking uh, when you were talking about the mission situation in Niger, Niger uh, that persecution was a part of that kind of thing. And so it ought not to be surprising that in Paul's case, he was in the business of going after people. He, his previous mission was simply a persecutor. And uh, so you have that recounted in, in the ninth chapter. In, in, if you back up to the eighth chapter, you find that there Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. And then he goes about and gets in this mode of trying to find other people and, and get them uh, brought into custody and, and brought against uh, charges against them. So that's his previous mission. And he was breathing out, verse 1 says, murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He got letters from the high priest. These weren't civil. This was religious charges. Didn't have to, didn't worry about going through the local constabularies. He got the religious folks on his side, asked for letters, and then he would go and any chance he could, he would bring people bound back for a trial, if you will, to face the, the religious uh, establishment. It's interesting that in this first uh, part of uh, chapter 9, <clears throat> that there's a new designation for these followers of Christ. They are called people of the way. You'll find many different descriptions of what it means to be a Christ follower. Um, we, we talk about people who are disciples of Christ. We talk about people who, <clears throat> who are of the way, and that probably harkens back a bit to uh, Jesus' words in John, where he says in chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so it wouldn't be unusual <clears throat> for this group of Christ followers to have a kind of a, a nickname. Uh, in another portion in the book of Acts, it describes them it, it, where it says, and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Christiani is a little word, a word. It means little Christs, little Jesuses. And it was a, it was a derisive term. It was, it was intended to kind of humiliate. But be that as it may, it probably is not too far off in terms of what we are to be about, in terms of representing Jesus here. They are the followers, and they belong to the way. <clears throat> and these are the folks that uh, Paul was going after. Uh, later on in Acts chapter 22, Paul will say this. He says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brothers started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as, a, as prisoners to be punished, Acts 22, verses 4 and 5. So he's the persecutor. He goes after them. And his previous exposure to Christians occurs 
really in the eighth chapter, back in chapter seven, actually, where he runs into Stephen. And, and, and you can imagine, uh, <clears throat> as Stephen describes it, as he's being stoned to death, verse 59 says, while they were stoning him, Acts 7, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he also says, then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I'm kind of wondering at times if perhaps the conversion of Saul was the answer to prayer by Stephen, even in his death bed, if you will. Don't hold their sin against them. And God does a work in changing Saul. Jesus sought to contact Saul when Saul wasn't interested in contacting him. I don't know if that was part of your story. I suspect there, much of our life is, I'm not really interested in God. And then something happens that captures our attention or it causes us to think, gives us pause. Oh, is this path I'm really going on really making sense? Is it meaningful? Is, is my life filling a purpose? Am I experiencing a sense of peace? Am I, you, may, you may experience events that occur in your life that cause you to wonder a bit. But I think that's all part of the providence of God, the sovereign working of God to keep after us. I think I had mentioned to you before a poem by uh, Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. I don't know. I love the phrase of that, that he keeps after us. <clears throat> when I was growing up, we had horses and dogs and that kind of thing. We had a dog, an old dog that was named Babe. It was a beagle. And beagles have great noses, and they love to hunt. And so we would hunt. My dad and I would go hunting. I'd get the 22, since that's the only other gun that my dad had. He had the shotgun, and I had the 22. So, but, but whenever Babe would go hunting, she would have this beagle howl. It just keep right after. And keep right after those rabbits. I remember standing one spot and watching as a rabbit went into a brush pile. And I heard the dog way over there. I thought, why that dog's not getting it? The rabbit's over here. Pretty soon, old baby rah, goes right into that brush pile. The hound was after that rabbit. In much the same way, God is after us. And I know he, he doesn't, he doesn't, oh, doesn't override our free will and our choice and the whole issue. But in that Hound of Heaven poem by Francis Thompson, it says this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the mist of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter up visted slope hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet, all things betray thee, who betrayest me. And it's a picture of just the steady grace of God that comes after us. 
and reaches out to us, unhurried, unperturbed, just keeping after us. And he doesn't beat us up, and he doesn't pin us against the wall and says, turn or burn. He comes to us with great grace. On our way up, we were listening to some songs. Uh, it was It's an old southern gospel station, I guess, we had on. And the song that came on was, Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit in the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. And you say, wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus. I, I, I digress. But, but, but the point is, he was after us. And he keeps after us as the hound of heaven. We find a divine contact. Then we see a, a divine conviction that occurs. And it comes in verse 4, as, as the scriptures say, where Saul, he falls to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That seems to be an odd thing. Because Saul was breathing out threats against the Lord's disciples, chapter one, chapter nine, verse one. He wasn't coming after Jesus. And and God captures his heart. He he calls him. He brings truth to him and gets at the very heart of the issue issue, and that is where he is convicted of what he is doing. That's interesting. There are a couple places in the scripture where God gets the attention of somebody by repeating their name. So if you look at Genesis 22, you'll you'll see Abraham, Abraham. You go to Genesis 46 and you'll find Jacob, Jacob. You go to Exodus chapter 3 and you'll get Moses, Moses. You go to Luke 10 and you'll hear Jesus saying, Martha, Martha. You, you go to Luke chapter 13, and you'll hear Jesus crying over a city and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You go to Luke 22, and he'll come to a Simon that's in the dumps, and he will say to him, Simon, Simon. There are times in the scriptures where Jesus chooses repetition of name. And here is the case with Saul. He does that to get the attention of Saul, just like he did that to get the attention of young Samuel, who had not early recognized the Lord. And in 1 Samuel 3, it says, When the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. When God speaks your name, whether it's once or twice. We are well served to respond like Samuel. Lord, you've got my attention. I'm listening. I'm listening. I wonder if the Lord has to repeat our name. I, I know the only time that we end up with name repetition is when you're mad at somebody, you want them to get them to do something. You know, Tim, Tim, clean your room. Here's a shovel, you know. Uh, or I know I'm in trouble when I get my middle name used. 
But that's the domain of my wife, so she gets to do that. So hopefully we don't make it so difficult for the Lord to get our attention that he has to repeat my name. It will respond to his gentle nudge, to the hound of heaven keeping after us. It's interesting that in this same kind of portion of scripture, he not only repeats his name, but he says, why do you persecute me? And you find this conviction that's going on, and you find in the theology of the story an amazing relationship that exists between Christ and his body. Jesus is very protective of his body. I'm not referencing so much the earthly body of Jesus as much as the body of Christ. He loves us. He calls us his bride. He, we are his own possession. We are, we are a peculiar people. We are, we, are, we are people who are loved immensely by God and by Christ, and he protects us and keeps us. And it's more than just Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because he was persecuting the people of the way, the body of Christ. And it becomes a very much a good point of theology. The great danger that we find here is the danger of a person who rejects Jesus. That's one of the great challenges that we face is when we come into the presence of the, of, of the Lord and, and we, we, we disregard that. We disregard him. We just kind of ignore him. <clears throat> I wonder if when we've come into his presence, if we've, if we've ever just kind of fallen on our face before God, we, we sense his presence among us, around us. One of the initial encounters I had with the person and work of the Holy Spirit was when I was a young person at camp, a summer camp. And it was a senior high week, I remember. And uh, we were in the dorm in the bunk room, whatever it was, with all, there must have been 10 of us. And it was after service, and I remember going, and I was under such conviction by the Spirit of God that I got into that room. The counselor was there. I got into that room, and I simply fell down. And I just became very aware of the presence of the Spirit of God. It was just that kind of sense of, wow. And I suspect... Paul heard some of that, though the whole teaching of the Holy Spirit isn't part of the process right here, right now, but he was aware of what, of what the claims of Christ were. Someone said there's a dangerous absence of awe and worship in our assemblies together today. We're boasting about standing on our feet instead of being broken and falling at his feet, and, 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 and that is a danger. Um, in the history of revival in our nation, there is a name that pops up fairly often from the early 1900s. His name was Evan Roberts. And one of the things that was part of a very significant move of God was a prayer that he simply made involving just a few words, and it was his prayer, Oh God, bend me, bend me. And whether it's someone who is coming to faith for the first time because God has been the hound of heaven after them and 
calling you and keeping after you and you suddenly realize his goodness and mercy and you say, oh God, I'm willing to be willing to be bent before you. Or whether it's a subsequent God keeping after us finally occurred in history in 1904 and 05 Welsh revival where he was instrumental in that. So there was that sense of conviction. I've said before, sometimes conviction is like going from preaching to meddling. It's when God takes his word and says, this is you. This is for you. This has to do with you. It's your turn to choose. Like Joshua 24, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me, my house will serve the Lord. And there comes a point in time when he comes after us and he says, okay, you've got the truth. You see my grace and mercy extended to you. Now are you going to believe that? Are you going to receive that? And that's a choice that you make, whether it's as a young person or older along the way is that sense of conviction. Another component that's a part of this process here is that we discover a divine conversion. Verse 5 and 6, it says, Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus. He responds, whom you are persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. This particular account of the conversion of Saul doesn't have a lot of a lot of stuff that we like to include in there, you know, where we say, and Saul prayed to believe Jesus as his personal Savior and Lord. We'd be more comfortable if that was included. But it's not fleshed out deeply there. But there is a change. There is a change that occurs. It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, when some people look at this passage, they try to explain it. I say, what could account? What could account for Saul's change? So radical, so so earth-changing, life-changing. <clears throat> so one of the earliest explanations was to suggest that Paul was suffering from epilepsy. They pull it from a couple of different places in the book of Acts, and 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 uh, so they they think maybe he was he just he just had a seizure. He just had a seizure. That's all that was. On the road to Damascus, he was suddenly seized by an epileptic fit. And as he fell to the ground in the seizure, he imagined that he heard his voice. And and one person, I referenced the story last week to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, his conversion. Okay, I'll come back to him for a moment. He heard, he heard, heard someone describing that this was how to understand and interpret this conversion of Paul. And he, when he heard that, here, here's his explanation. He said, oh, blessed epilepsy, blessed epilepsy. Would that every man in London could have epilepsy like that. Now, that's one way to describe it. And, I, and again, I don't want to make light of it because there was a change. It may not have been thoroughly fleshed out right now, but something was different. From this point on, things are different from for Saul in his journey. And it comes to basically two basic important questions we all have to answer. The first question is this, who are you? Who are you? Similar question asked in Acts 22 and verse 8. Same thing, who are you, Lord? 
And Jesus gives him the answer. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Whenever we journey in our life, we come to a point where we have to answer the question, who is this Jesus? Is he more than a good teacher, a good person, an amazing miracle worker, and all the things that he did, but who is he? Peter got it right when in the Gospels, who do men say that I am? Jesus, or Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. We have to get that answer right. He was more than, he is more than just a good teacher, more than a religious person who, who, who lived a life that was exemplary and did, went about doing good and all these things. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. And more than the Savior, he is my Savior. And that's where it's got to go. Who are you, Lord? That's the first question. The second question is this. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Acts 22.10 puts it that way. And essentially the answer to that question is, I want you to give up the right to yourself. I want you to give up the right to yourself. All your life long, you've been calling the shots. You've been doing as you willy-nilly please. Sometimes the challenge of, of having family and raising kids is that that and sometimes they don't they don't uh, they don't always do the right and smartest thing in life. I went I, <laughs> they'll tell you that. I went over and got the van uh, oil change in the van. I was talking with Rick, the mechanic that that I go to, and we were reflecting. He had he had been part of the church in New Cumberland years back, and and so we still have ongoing relationship, and he does good work, and so. Uh, he was talking about some of the experiences. He said, <clears throat> he, said uh, he said, when I was 25, he says, I was young and stupid. <laughs> and he said, now, wait a minute. I'm more than that. I'm still young and stupid. I'm still stupid. <laughs> there are times when we don't do things that are very smart. Uh, we think we know. We think we know more than we actually do. But, uh, that's a part of it. But the issue is really, am I willing to yield my right to call the shots? Am I giving up my right to myself? And that's what accepting Jesus involves. Not only who is this Jesus, but what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And, and Jesus is a gentleman by his Holy Spirit, and he doesn't come and twist our arm and say, okay, now you're going to turn, or you're going to have a lot of stuff you're going to have to deal with in life. He comes to us and he says, I want you to Yield yourself to me. Let me take up residence. Let me make your heart my home. That's a whole nother sermon there, and that's another issue. But that's really what conversion is involving here in the story. It's a change from thinking that you can run your own life to an acknowledgement that God holds the program in his hands and he has the right to tell you what to do. And he knows better than you do. 
That was the first thing that Paul experienced when he became a Christian. The right of Jesus Christ to be Lord and to tell him what he was to do. That's what conversion is. It's a revolutionary change of government resulting in a radical change in behavior. And even if that change is more gradual than sudden, change occurs and needs to occur. That's one of the things that sometimes we, we, we look at to see whether a person has understood what it means to be a follower of Christ. Are they still doing the things they are doing? Is there a change in ownership, in lordship? Are, are we becoming more Christ-like or are we becoming Christ-less? And it's a change that occurs. It's a revolutionary change. C.S. Lewis is a British, famous British writer, number of very, very excellent works, one of which is a book called Surprised by Joy, in which he, it's kind of an autobiography. In that, he describes how the Lord persistently closed in on him. It's, he says, you must picture me alone, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. That's how he saw himself. He went kicking and screaming into the kingdom, it seemed. But God did an amazing thing in that person's life. A further writing, he says in that same book, says, is a number of metaphors that he used to describe God's seeking after those who are not seeking after him. He, he, he refers to God as the great angler for the fishermen of the group. You know, just putting that out, that lure, just to capture our attention. He, he, he talks about him like a, like a, like a cat chasing a mouse. He pictures him as a pack of hounds closing in on a fox. He, he portrays him as a chess player moving in to the ultimate checkmate. And all those are all okay in terms of descriptions. Well, we talk about that, you know. You ever been in that chess match with God and you think, oh, I can move this, I can go here, and I can go there. And suddenly you find yourself in things getting tighter and tighter in which you become aware that it is me and God and I am not going to win this match. And he says, checkmate. And you say, I give up. I yield. You win. That's the story of Paul in terms of him coming to that place of yielding to Christ. He put it in another way. He says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, O Lord, that could not be. This heart had still refused thee, had thou not chosen me. T'was the same love that spread the feast, that sweetly forced me in, else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin.'" Not my will to choose, but your mercy. 
and allowing him to do his work in my life. One final part of the conversion of Damascus Rose the Damascus Road experience in verse 9. And, and I, this, is, this is probably the least theologically substantial part of the message. So take it for what it's worth. Verse 9 says, For three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. What in the world are you talking about there? I said, it's a, we observe a divine communion. God closed him in with himself. Didn't, 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 didn't send him to the local you know, discipleship training class, you know, just, I, I got you, I want you. Acts 26 records this same kind of experience where it says, verse 16, but get up and stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That is the Acts 26 additional piece that occurs during this whole time of this time alone with God. So he goes... And he begins the journey, a journey of a changed life. His, his, his conversion was undeniable. You, you, you can't dispute it. He went storming out of Jerusalem in a huff, and he came stumbling into Damascus in humility. That's a change. He went to arrest Christians, and he ended up being arrested by Christ. That's a change. He began a trip determined to wipe out the message of Christ, he ended the trip devoted to the cause of taking the message to the ends of the earth. He went from being a persecutor to being a persecuted one, all part of Acts chapter 9, some of which we'll get to next week. Without question, without question, Saul, renamed Paul, is one of the greatest figures in this hall of fame um, that we would know about. But regardless of the things he was able to accomplish, he still came into the kingdom in the same way you and I do, by faith in the all-sufficient work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, on our behalf. He cleanses us from all sin, sets us on the Jesus road in the way. That particular phrase was a word, was a phrase that was characteristic in early American Native American ministry. They would often talk about the change that they would experience. They would, they would walk the Jesus road. It's like being part of the way. So here we have a, another roadside encounter, and it begs the question, are you on the road? He's coming in great love and mercy after us. And if we have encountered him on the road, then the natural question is, are there others that you are looking to come along, to invite along? It's a roadside encounter. Those are the kinds of encounters that I think we need to be praying for. That's why Wednesday night is an important piece as you pray for people in your web of influence, in your network, bringing them before the Father and trusting him to move and answer prayer. 
the conversion of Saul may have been a part of the prayer of Stephen and answer. When we begin to pray that God would bring up, bring across our pathway, people who are on the road who need to encounter Jesus, he, he may surprise us with joy in giving us the opportunity to serve him and being part of the messengers, messengers of God. That's the conversion of Saul. I, I, I suspect that uh, I suspect that, that many of you have experienced, maybe not the same way Saul did, but have experienced faith in Jesus Christ that's changed your life. And, and, and if you're still moving that direction, I just want to invite you, let the hound of heaven catch you. Let him catch you. And he's not going to chew you up. You know, he wants to love on you. And with immense arms, give you the hug of heaven from the hound of heaven. Let's pause for prayer. And then we're going to sing again the song that just so fits, fits very well. So let's pause for prayer. Father in heaven, you who know our needs so very well, you who with relentless mercy keep coming after us, we ask you here today to extend your mercy and your grace yet again so that we might know you, that we might know that you are the Lord, that we might know what you want us to do, and that is to follow you and get our orders from you. You told Saul, I want you to go, and I'll tell you what you have to do, what you must do. We want to be people who are listening to your orders, your direction for us in our life and the journey. So use us in ways that will bring honor to Jesus. Thank you for your great grace to us. We don't deserve what we've received, but we sure are grateful. And these things we thank you for in the strong name of Jesus and his amazing grace. Amen.